Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hey, it's Kramer. My mission is simple, to make you money. Man Money is away today, but don't worry. I've got something special for you from my friends here at CNBC. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. Jim Kramer is off this week, and this is On the Edge. Good to have you with us once again. Tonight's top takes billionaire boom, how the world's wealthiest cashed in during the pandemic and what that says about the power of big tech. SPAC attack has the blank check bonanza just gone too far in this red hot market. Bitcoin's dirty little secret why Bill Gates is reigning on the crypto craze. The buzz around people will meet the digital artist taking the NFT world by storm and taking on Tesla what safety officials just said about the company's much-hyped autopilot. We begin, though, tonight with word that the world's top titans added tremendously to their wealth during the pandemic. According to The Washington Post, nine of this country's richest people, including Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Mark Zuckerberg and the Google guys, increased their wealth by more than $360 billion over the past year. It only underscores just how powerful the tech industry has become. The question now... Is it too powerful? We welcome in angel investor and host of the All In podcast, Jason Calacanis and Casey Newton. He is the founder of the newsletter platform. Gentlemen, it's good to see you. Of course, Jason, we are all in the spirit of everybody making as much money as they can. However, is this thing getting a little bit out of control? They're already the biggest companies in the market. They control our lives. They have now the richest people in the world. What's going on? Um, success, the American dream, capitalism, entrepreneurship, opportunity, you know, the people we're talking to in your quick rundown of uh, people who have accumulated wealth, almost universally uh, are self-made. And so these are not people of privilege. These are people who are successful. And I think it's really important for us to separate those two groups, right? There are people who are born into privilege and there are people who created immense value in the world, uh, whether that's Jeff or Elon uh, or Larry and Sergey. And um, we should be celebrating them, and we need more of them in America. And what we really need in America, uh, to the point of income inequality, is for us to copy, you know, maybe what Australia does with their super funds, uh, people putting in, being forced to put into the market and have uh, their retirement savings there, or maybe even the freedom dividend, where when you're born in America, we put $2,000, you know, in the NASDAQ and the Dow (laughs) for you to claim when you're 65. Uh, we need more participation in equity. That's why I'm super proud to be an investor in Robinhood. Casey, anything wrong with this billionaire boom? You see the names, you see the money, $360 billion added during the devastation of go. the pandemic. 
Yeah, well, I mean, what's wrong with the billionaire boom is just the insane and growing inequality in this country, right? During the last presidential administration, we cut taxes in a, in a significant way, which undermined the social safety net and made it harder for future Jeff Bezoses and Mark Zuckerbergs to come along. So I don't have any particular problem with you know any individual billionaire being successful. I want pe people to be able to start companies and to be successful. But these guys have also become avatars for some real problems in this country, and I think it's probably no coincidence coincidence that we've seen many of them lean a little extra harder into philanthropy than uh, in Jeff Bezos's case they ever had done before. The, the question, Jason, becomes, What does becomes, it even though, mean, avatars? What does it mean, avatars? I mean, well, they're human like beings the, who worked hard. Uh, well, uh, they're also, you know, sort of the, the, the most highly visible beneficiaries of the income inequality in this country. And so they're going to be on the receiving end of, of a lot more criticism. And I think, you know, uh, if by they who? want the to press? by the woke, by the woke press, that's, you know, looking to get headlines. What is that, that, that's that who's doing mean? it. What does it even mean? It means that I think you, the press loves to dunk yeah. on successful billionaires yeah. while they make the largest contributions in the history of philanthropy. It's never enough for the New York Times and the press. All you do is criticize, you know, these, um, uh -huh. you know, entrepreneurs yeah. and they're giving away money at a tremendous rate. We should be lauding them. They shouldn't be avatars for, you know, our criticism. They should be celebrated. $10 billion to climate change from Jeff. Elon gave a hundred million to carbon sequestrian for the X, for the X prize. These are things yeah. that have never been done in the history of humanity. We should be celebrating them, not vilifying yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, Jason, if you think that's impressive, you should see what we could do with tax revenue. Okay, <laughs> what aren't we doing that we need to do? I mean, this we, we've got one of the top countries in the world when it comes to opportunity. Everybody wants to come to this country. And listen, I'm not some crazy right winger saying this. I, I, I'm voting Democrat. I'm anti-Trump. I was anti the tax cuts. They were completely unnecessary. Um, but, you know, this is still the greatest country in the world for a reason. Well, let me ask uh, you this. Because of entrepreneurship. Let, let me ask you this, Jason. I mean, you, you, you say it's, you know, the media has the issue, blah, blah, blah. Um, could a subsection of the media could has the, the, could the issue. Could this, in fact, invite politicians more regulation, right? They're already zeroed in, of course. Jason, on, on what's going yeah. on in big tech. Is this yet another reason to have them take a real big look? We mentioned this week the Biden administration has already appointed two new people with regulatory chops and antitrust background. Mm -hmm. Is that the next step? I mean, did they place Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders in any positions? Of course not. It's, it's a ridiculous position to attack billionaires for being successful. America is built on entrepreneurship. We, we, we should love these and cherish these companies because you know what, when we, when we build capitalism and democracy together, that fights against communism plus capitalism. And that really is the existential threat in all of this. And there's a reason why we elected the most boring moderate candidate we could and they basically exiled Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. The majority of Americans don't want that. The noisy media and Twitter folks who wanna be woke and say, capitalism is horrible and you know billionaires need to be stopped and we need to have a wealth tax and we have to somehow redistribute their wealth they don't have to worry about redistributing the wealth rich people give it all away that's the, that is the overwhelming trend we're seeing casey, in our lifetime casey the, these these companies don't even like each other this, this isn't a matter of of whether whether people like them or the media likes them they don't even like each other and we had another taste of that today with Microsoft's president, Brad Smith, taking a shot at Google, right? You got this whole publishing battle going on in Australia. Let's listen to what Brad Smith said about Google, and we can react on the other side to that. When companies start threatening countries, 
and saying that if their legislators pass laws they don't like, they'll pull up and leave, then something seems a little out of whack. And I think, you know, trying to restore what has always been the case, which is namely that no one should be above the law, no person, no government, no company, no technology. All right, so that's Brad Smith. Google hears that and they respond, well, they, talking about Microsoft, are reverting to their familiar playbook of attacking rivals and lobbying for regulations that benefit their own interests. They are now making self-serving claims that are even willing to break the way the open web works in an effort to undercut a rival. And their claims about our business and how we work with news publishers are just plain wrong. And I could substitute another company and they'd probably say the same thing about one or the other. They just don't like each other all that much. No. And I mean, you can go back to 2013 when Microsoft was running the Scroogled campaign, trying to make you terrified of all the ways that Google might be using your data. Uh, the enmity between these companies runs really deep. We haven't seen it in a while. Um, but now Microsoft has a fresh opportunity to score some points uh, at Google's expense. And they're going to go for it. Um, I am very curious what Microsoft thinks it is going to gain by what seems to be, you know, pretty transparently a publicity stunt. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Jason, last word on this to you. Yeah, I mean, tech loves to have a good fight, but in reality, all these companies are wildly successful. And this is like a playbook and a, a vestige of the old days when Steve Jobs and and Bill Gates would actually fight, and it was actually entertaining. This isn't important or entertaining in any way. I'll be totally <laughs> yeah. honest. All right, maybe that's maybe that's the best way to say it. Casey, thank you. Jason, you're sticking around. Speaking of big tech, those stocks got smacked again in the stock market today as fears over rising interest rates continue to hit the Nasdaq's biggest momentum names. And speaking of momentum, there seems to be no end in sight to the red hot SPAC market. Several reports now say the ride-hailing company Grab from Singapore is in talks with Altimeter to go public in a deal that could value that company up to $40 billion, by far the biggest on record. Jason Calacanis again with us, along with the Vanity Fair contributor and author William Cohen. Bill, good to see you. Thanks for joining the uh, fun on the edge tonight. Uh, you've been researching SPACs a lot. Is this whole thing now getting a little out of hand? Well, Scott, I mean, look, I think this is absolutely a legitimate corporate finance phenomenon on Wall Street now. Uh, you know, there's no question that $150 billion worth of equity has been raised through SPACs since the beginning of January 2020. And it's, uh, you know, it's going gangbusters, as you pointed out. January and February were the, probably the biggest months for SPAC equity raising uh, uh, in, in 15 months. And the question is, is typical of what happens on Wall Street, uh, have, are people going too far? Is it out of hand? Is there, are people getting out of control? Is, the, is it too much? Uh, are the incentives too much swayed in the favor of the SPAC sponsors, the hedge funds, the smart guys who have figured out how to uh, put these things together, uh, get equity cheap, and try to merge with a private company? That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, are we now sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel of companies that are going to merge with a SPAC? And so, you know, again, my my point would be that it's a legitimate corporate finance uh, activity on Wall Street. It's absolutely started to supplant the traditional IPO, which is very interesting, and it's a great way for uh, companies to go public and people to raise money. But you know, are we are we going to is there going to be a fallout? And I think there is a fallout that has already started among uh, various of these SPACs that have gone too far. And you saw your friend 
Chamath taking money uh, out of Virgin Galactic, which I think 250 million or so out, which started to make investors quite nervous. Right. So I think we're starting to hit a peak and coming down the other side now. That's that's uh, Jason's bestie. Be careful how you talk about Chamath. So, so um, yeah. no, he's fine. No yeah, problem, no. With Chamath. Jason, you made the distinction no, I mean, before. It, he's, he's, you yeah. made the distinction before. There are good SPACs. There, there are bad SPACs. And now we got commentary this week from the SEC. You know, beware of the ones that are being marketed, or at least don't buy them if you're just drawn to them by the famous faces who are now seemingly all behind them. There, there you go. Celebrity involvement yeah. in a SPAC does not mean this the, the disclaimer that the investment in a particular <laughs> SPAC or SPACs generally is appropriate for all investors. We're also going to throw on our wall the SPAC of Palooza. Literally, I mean, so many of the most popular names on Wall Street now, as we know, have SPACs. There's Wilbur Ross now up in the upper left hand corner. Even Wilbur's got one. I mean, is it, is it gone too far? Yeah. No. Um, and in fact, we have more to go and we are nowhere near the, the downside of this. That's completely ridiculous. Um, it's actually going quite the opposite. There are hundreds of companies with billions of dollars in revenue that are private right now. And it would be very healthy for those to be publicly traded companies, to be under the scrutiny of being a public company and to have that discipline and to allow market participants to not just buy the top 10 stocks and own Disney and Apple and all the big names and be overbought into those um, and allow those mid-tier companies to create a currency to acquire other companies and to compete. This is amazing uh, for America and for all investors, from the employees in the company and those stakeholders, all the way up to Chamath, you know, taking these companies public and to the retail investors who get to buy them. Well, it's most that amazing. Said, it's most amazing for the sponsors, though, right? I mean, that, that's who it's most amazing for. I think they for. get a good deal. Yeah, the sponsors get a good deal, but they have to set up, you know, I think they spend about, you know, 10 million bucks setting these things up. So there is some risk involved. And if these companies um, are not uh, high quality merchandise and they're not high quality uh, revenue, those people who bought those early shares in the SPAC can just redeem, uh, from what I understand, and take their cash back. So there's a, there are some self-correcting mechanisms here. And in terms of vibrant capitalism, we now have three ways to go public, direct listings, the traditional route, and SPACs. That's good. Overall, cap capitalism benefits by competition. Now, founders and investors and boards can pick one of these three choices or the fourth choice. If you don't want to deal with public markets, stay private. But we're going back to the 80s when technology companies went public in year five, six, or seven, as opposed to years 10, 11, and 12, it like all, Airbnb and Uber did. And that's good, but you just have to be careful. If you're it, buying in the public, you're now a venture capitalist in some cases. You're buying private companies that are losing money. Be careful. You end on exactly the point that, Bill, I wanted to go back to you on, because that's what you say the real risk is. Absolutely. Retail investors getting burned through all this about stuff they don't know about. They may be enamored by the big names that are in it. It seems like a sexy place to be right now until the market changes. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic bull market phenomenon and excitement and, and, and enthusiasm. And it feels like it's just going to go on forever. The trees are going to grow to the sky until next thing you know, sentiment changes and the whole thing falls off a cliff, just like more. Did, just like, uh, uh, you know, Internet IPOs 1.0 did, uh, you know, people who've not lived through a bear market don't appreciate what's going on here. And, and I agree with everything Jason's saying, by the way. I think it's a great phenomenon. It's great that there's now a third alternative uh, for companies to consider when going public. But this is just getting way out of hand. It's just too many dollars chasing few, too few opportunities. 
when you know the Churchill Four spec goes up, you know, almost infinitely when they talk about the merger with Lucid Car Company, and then on the reality, it, the spec goes down fifty percent. Who gets hurt there? Not Michael Klein, the former Citibank investment banker. Who gets hurt are the investors who bought uh, at the top of that little peak and now are down fifty percent. Who's watching out for them? Who's caring for them? Nobody. Yeah, well, Michael Klein, I mean, the sponsors I think are going to be fine. Sponsors are always fine, except for maybe if they don't get a deal done, and then they're out there five to ten million dollars in fees. But beyond that, they've got the greatest deal in history. And until people, you know, begin to see that maybe some of these things don't go well, this phenomenon continues, and then it'll be just like a light switch going off, and then it'll end, and it'll just become another corporate finance arrow in the quiver. Jason, you want, clearly yeah. wanted to say something. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we have to put this in context. You know, if we're talking about retail investors, a lot of them would have been spending their money going to Vegas or buying, a, you know, a 12 pack of White Claw or betting on, you know, God forbid, the Jets. Like, that's where this capital is being redeployed. And those people are now learning about finance at a very young age. And everybody wants to be super protective of them. But, you know, we're not very protective of people who go into Vegas and making bets there. I would rather see young people taking their discretionary spending and, yes, even buying cryptocurrency or buying SPACs. If you buy the things that are incredibly volatile and you learn that lesson early, then maybe you'll learn to actually, you know, the basics of value investing, like using the product, understanding who the management is and what their track record is and looking at the growth rates and then comparing those to the valuation and holding stocks for a decade, which is what we all know, time in market, not timing the market is what matters. And so I think it's wonderful that young people are getting involved in the markets and we have more participation. But again, SPACs are not all created equal. Some of them are you know, uh, research projects and other ones actually have real revenue. Sure. You need to read the perspective, you need to use the products, and you need to make it a smaller percentage of your diversified portfolio. Yeah, very well said. I agree, I agree with both of you. Good hot takes all the way around. And Bill, I got to be a little careful. You don't want to go against the momentum tide in the market. You learned your lesson on the edge earlier this week when you kind of called out <laughs> Kathy Wood Kathy. and the Twitterati haters came after you yep. uh, like a swarm. Yeah, well, she had another tough day today, but, you know, there's she's got huge momentum. Her fans love her. You know, I just think, uh, Scott, that these are people, as Jason was talking about, with young investors and SPACs who have not lived through a bear market. And it really hurts living through a bear market. And, you know, the Kathy Wood fans are going to find that out. The young investors, as Jason says, in SPACs are going to find that out. And it's a great ride until the roller coaster starts going down and out of control off the rails. And that does happen. It happened a year ago, exactly in March. And, you know, God bless us. It's going to happen again, unfortunately. You, you know but that's how it okay. goes, Bill. Eventually the music stops. When that's is right. the question? Bill Cohen, thank Nobody you so does. much. Jason, you stick around, Bill. We'll talk to you again soon after the break. Bitcoin's dirty little secret. Is crypto killing the environment? We are just getting started right here on The Edge. Stay with us. Coming up, has Bitcoin made an enemy in Bill Gates? In our War of Words, we ask if crypto could be hastening a climate catastrophe. And Robert Frank paints a picture of an auction that has the NFT world buzzing. Why the digital artist Beeple is our main character. Plus, has COVID killed the suit? Why your office may no longer be at peace with the three-piece. 
when we return on The Edge on CNBC. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now to our war of words and why billionaire Bill Gates is hating on Bitcoin, it seems. Mr. Gates telling The New York Times this week that, quote, Bitcoin uses more electricity per transaction than any other method known to mankind. So does crypto have a climate conundrum? Jason Calacanis is with me, plus our special guest. (laughs) I know you know it's coming. There he is. He's Pomp, Anthony Pompliano. Pomp Investments founder, noted Bitcoin fans. Good to have you guys back together again. What do you think, Jason? Is this a real issue that Bill Gates and some others are concerned about, or is it much ado about nothing? Um, it's certainly a real issue. I mean, Bitcoin's, uh, you know, the the mining of them and the management of the network, it, it, it costs a lot in terms of energy. Probably a small country is the total usage. So it's definitely something we should be aware of. And it's something that actually is fixable. Um, you know, b- people think Bitcoin is a static thing. It's not. You can you can change the code of uh, Bitcoin, if ever, all the miners agree. So there's no reason not to fix it or to optimize it. Bill Gates is right. But like anything, you know, the crypto kitties are so sensitive that if you say anything negative about crypto and you maybe tell people to pump the brakes or be careful putting their entire net worth into it, they all just freak out and then start sending memes to you for 12 hours on Twitter. So um, of course, it's an issue. Any reasonable adult would say it's an issue. But so was having you know, bank branches. And we used to have 25,000 of them in the United States, according to a, a quick research I just did. And, you know, we're now down to under 9,000. So, you know, there, there's a cost to running any business and we need to look at the value of that business and then decide if it's worth it or not. And if it can be optimized, it should be optimized, just like anything else. The bigger picture is there's probably uh, better uses of our time in terms of solar and nuclear and other projects we could be working on. Uh, Bitcoin is but you know, a fraction of 1% <laughs> Pop, of the global Pop, energy you're being usage. being so patient. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked you're able to contain yourself. It's because I'm right. <laughs> Pop's going to just agree. Marty Bennett, who always says, uh, Bitcoin detractors haven't done their homework. Every single data point flies in the face of what these people are saying. Bill Gates is a really smart guy, but Bitcoiners understand Bitcoin better than Bill Gates understands it. And what you find is around the world, there's a $19 billion financial incentive. That is the annual revenue of the mining industry to go find the cheapest power possible. And the cheapest power possible is in renewable and clean power. When you go and you look at places around the United States, 
you see companies like Great American Mining who are literally capturing gas flaring, the worst type of environmental damage in the world. They're capturing that gas flaring and on site, they're turning it into Bitcoin mining power. It is incredible. Bitcoin is actually the largest driver, in my opinion, of clean and renewable energy R&D in the world. If you go into certain provinces in China, 95%, 95% of the power consumption is coming from renewable energy. And the reason why it's so popular in China is because they overbuilt their hydropower capabilities. There is stranded power all over this world. And what we are finding is that financial incentives drive the world. There's $19 billion at stake today. As the price of Bitcoin continues to go up, there will be a larger and larger financial incentive. And people want to use clean, renewable energy to mine Bitcoin. They're already doing it. And Bill Gates, frankly, doesn't understand Bitcoin. He doesn't understand the power consumption. And so what we should be listening to is the industry (laughs) experts, not people who don't understand what they're talking about. Every single data point disproves what he's saying, yet we run around because it's Bill Gates. Bill Gates was great in the 80s and in the 90s and into the 2000s. Bill Gates has been against Bitcoin and Bitcoin has continued to prove to be one of the most important technologies over the last decade. And it will continue to persist regardless of what Bill Gates, Warren Buffett or Jason, I love Jason, but whatever Jason says, Bitcoin will continue to still be a worthwhile technology that drives clean and renewable energy R&D around the world. I own Bitcoin. I think it's a brilliant technology. Doesn't mean it can be more efficient. And what you just stated was a bunch of opinions. Uh, You don't actually know. I don't actually know where all of these mines are located. And uh, yeah, you're right. They're going to go to wherever they can get the cheapest energy or they can steal energy, which is a big part of it as well. People are, you know, figuring out ways to hijack uh, off of the grid, whatever energy they can find. There's no reason to not optimize it. We should optimize it. Um, But, you know, here's the classic playbook of any uh, you know, pomp or pump, you know, like person, which is you attack Bill Gates and say he's washed up or whatever. Bill Gates is one of the greatest, you know, technologists of all time, all due respect, certainly going to contribute more to the planet than you ever will pomp. Uh, and he deserves our respect. And he does have the right opinion, which is if this can be uh, cleaned up, it should be cleaned up. There's no reason to not make anything more energy efficient. And if this is, in fact, if crypto is, in fact, going to become the new standard, um, why not start that process right now? Because there are plenty of cryptocurrencies that don't mind. Correct, Pomp? Listen, I own more Bitcoin than Bill Gates. So I think I'm going to be Hold on, I just asked you. I, di- I didn't ask you to character assassinate Bill Gates. We get it. You're a genius. Bill Gates is an idiot. What I asked you was, are there other cryptocurrencies that don't require the same energy consumption and don't mine the coins? Yes you, or no? You, you, you're, you're missing the point. It's like on a relative basis. There you go. Can't even answer the question. Energy, it's so on, funny. Hold, well, <laughs> If you allow me to answer the question, if I want to compare total energy consumption, then the U.S. banking system and the U.S. dollar is the most wasteful energy consumption we have. That would be a ridiculous argument, in your opinion. What ends up happening is 74 percent Fidelity, CoinShares, a number of organizations have done large scale studies. You can use Google. Just go Google it. Seventy four percent or more of all energy consumption in Bitcoin mining is renewable power. Literally, Bitcoin mining is cleaner consumption of power than the U.S. dollar. I don't see anyone here saying that we should go stop using the U.S. dollar because it consumes so much power and is dirty power. Third time. Bitcoin is cleaner. Are there other cryptocurrencies that don't require mining? Obviously, there are. So this is something. Uh, of course, there are, but they're not as secure. Correct. But hold on, they're not. As, they're not as secure. They're not as transparent. They're not as programmatic. It's like saying, is there a company that has other stocks, but it's not the same type of company? Sure. But when you look at Bitcoin, remember, could it Bitcoin be improved, is the strongest. Trump, could it be improved? 
Bitcoin is the most beautifully designed, strongest computing network in the world. Again, it is the strongest computer network in the world. But what do you say? What do you say, Pom? Let me jump in if I could. What do you say? Because some do say that the annual carbon emissions to mine and process Bitcoin transactions are equal to the amount emitted by all of New Zealand or Argentina. So how do you respond to that? I mean, that's that's not that's not an opinion. Some of this is actually based on facts, isn't it, Pom? What, what they say is that the total energy consumption is equal to some of these countries. But the point is that in many cases, what people are doing is they're taking stranded or wasted energy. Again, in China, the reason why there is so much, 95% in some of the provinces is renewable energy is because that power is not being consumed. Bitcoin provides a persistent use of that power. 100% of the time, if you have power and you can't monetize it in any way, you can point it at the Bitcoin network and you can make money. That financial incentive is driving oil and gas companies across the world. We're talking about some of the most harmful environmental uh, contributors. They are saying we flare gas into the air. Instead, we are going to capture that gas flare and we are going to turn it into Bitcoin money. And what is actually going to happen, and again, you guys, everyone will laugh at this, but mark my words, keep the receipt, is that Bitcoin is going to prove to drive more uh, renewable and clean energy R&D than anyone in the world. Tesla, a company whose entire mission is on clean, renewable energy, literally went and bought Bitcoin. Do you think that they would be doing that if they thought it was harmful to the environment or it was wasteful to the environment? No, of course not. We will make that the last word. Anthony Pompliano, appreciate it as always. You make this fun. We'll talk to you again soon. Jason's still with us, sticking around. Thanks, guys. All right, all right. NFTs becoming a BFD. We'll share tonight's main character, the digital artist making millions, tens of millions off the hot trend that's coming up. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back. Tonight's main character, the digital artist Beeple. If you don't know who he is, well, you probably will soon, given he just sold a piece of digital art at auction for a record $69 million. So who is the man setting the NFT world on fire? Robert Frank is here with our introduction on the edge with us tonight. Robert. Scott, the artist is Mike uh, Mike Winkleman, better known as Beeple. He's 39 years old. He's a Wisconsin dad who actually never sold a work of art before last year. Now, he is one of the top three living artists in the world in terms of auction price, right behind Jeff Koons and David Hockney. Christie's said the auction made him a rich man since he is the seller 
and he keeps most of the proceeds, also a share of any of his work that resells since that's the basis of NFTs. Now, the buyer, also a fascinating character, he's a mysterious crypto investor in Singapore who goes by the name Metacoven. He launched a company called Metapurse that buys NFTs and displays them. He bought a collection of 20 beeples last year for $2 million, sold fractional shares with a new type of crypto coin. Those crypto coins now worth a combined $165 million. I spoke with Metacoven's partner who told me they don't know what they will do with this piece, but they own virtual land in the metaverse and spent over a million dollars on a virtual museum. And Scott, he says his goal here is to decentralize and democratize the art market. More power to him. The whole thing seems crazy to me. $69 million and all the other stories that we talk about every single day. Robert, you stay with us. Let's bring in now Eliana Murillo. She is the founder and CEO of Element, a former Google head of multicultural marketing as well. Eliana, it's great to have you here. Robert, as I said, is still with us. I guess, Eliana, the question is whether the art world at large is going to continue to take this seriously. I want you to listen to what people told our network today, and we can react on the, to that on the other side. If you look at this compared to any other type of medium, be it sculpture, painting, whatever, it has all the same elements. It has craft, it has message, it has intent, it has nuance. Um, and so I, I'm absolutely confident that, that uh, digital art will be viewed as just another medium and, and will be accepted in, in the rest of the art world. All right, Eliana, says the guy who just made $69 million off of his digital piece of art. Is he right? I think it's incredible. I think he makes a good point about how the things we normally value about art still exist in this digital world. He's creating something that is an output of his creativity. This is something that took him 5,000 days to create. So that's something very valuable that we haven't seen before in the art world necessarily, in a digital landscape. Now the two are colliding. But I think that what is really central to this is that this is a way to verify authenticity of art in a way that we haven't seen before. We do see, though, people who buy skins on video games, people who, if they could, they would probably pay for the checkmark on their Twitter account or their Instagram account. And so this is a form of that where we have this digital behavior happening that's already making a lot of sense to people who are investing not only in cryptocurrencies, but in other different assets on the web. And now bringing in the art world, it's interesting because the democratization is going to evolve as crypto evolves, as people learn more about it and how does this function. But at the end of the day, there's a way to know for sure who owns that piece. And we know they paid a lot of money for it. Yeah, Robert, you know the art world pre pretty well. I mean, look, he, he was honest this morning on the air. He, he said, like, not everything is going to be a grand slam home run, but it's, you know, kind of like the Internet bubble. Yeah, some things are going to blow up. But that doesn't mean the Internet itself is going to blow up. And this this is going to be fine for the art market. What do you think? Well, look, this was kind of what I call the GameStop moment for the art market. You had these technology enabled collectors that were brand new. Ninety one percent of the bidders for this people had never bought anything on Christie's before. And they have taken over the institution, the old boys club of art. And they've made it interesting. They've made it more accessible. They've made it more gamified. And that's created a lot of excitement. The challenge, as Beeple mentioned this morning also, is that the supply is very quickly going to just drown out the market. You know, we've seen whether it's, you know, the NBA top shots or memes or tweets, you know, the initial rush of this was probably a lot of trapped wealth in the crypto holders that finally found an asset they can buy without paying taxes or declaring the currency. But 
now everything is being turned into an NFT. And, and I just think being able to separate the very high quality peoples of the world, and there probably aren't many with all of the rest, is going to be a process and there's going to be a lot of pain in that. And even, Eliana, quickly from you, if the bubble does burst, you don't yeah. think it's going to be a sudden deal? A bubble implies inefficiencies in the market, and this is just starting. So this is not something that can just drop overnight. But what's interesting about it is this is about scarcity. So there are not going to be m many first people pieces, first Jack Dorsey tweet that's selling for tons of money as well. And really what this signals is it's about community. The comparison to Robinhood is a smart one because that was only possible on Reddit because of community. So in the crypto world, community is what establishes that the value is real. And now we know it is. All right. We'll leave it there. Eliana, thank you. Robert Frank, our thanks to you as well. Stick around. COVID casual. Did the pandemic change the way people dress forever? We'll have more on The Edge next. Welcome back to On the Edge, less than 20 minutes from the news with Shepard Smith. Shep, what do you have coming up? Top of the Hi, hour Scott. tonight. There is a political, a political collapse happening before our eyes in New York State. Last hour, the two Democratic senators from New York joined more than a dozen Democrats in the congressional delegation to call for Andrew Cuomo to resign. But the governor is calling his detractors reckless and dangerous. It's the lead story and still developing on the news tonight. Plus, the city of Minneapolis agrees to pay George Floyd's family a settlement, the family's emotional reaction, and why it's being called historic. And inside the growing Microsoft hack, it turns out it's still going on. The White House National Security Advisor issuing a warning today about how little the United States actually knows about the damage. The news begins in 16 minutes. Scott, we'll see you then. And we will be there, Shep. Thank you. Chances are you're watching our show tonight in a pair of sweats or jeans. What's really become the new uniform of the pandemic? It's leading some to suggest that COVID killed the dress code and it's never coming back. Rachel Toschen covers style for GQ. Rachel, welcome. It's good to have you. I can only imagine what the big fashion houses must be thinking about this. Is this how it's going to be? Well, I think there are a couple of interesting things happening in the fashion industry right now. One is that the reality is, and I, I hate to tell you this, Scott, because I know that you're a big um, devotee of suiting, but sweatpants are totally here to stay. I mean, they are essentially going to be the new blue jeans. I mean, much in the way that blue jeans over the past half century or so um, sort of represented American freedom and liberty, you know, sweatpants are kind of going to do the same thing. They're going to represent this moment and kind of um, what it is that we want to carry forward um, going, you know, from here on out. But the other thing is that I think we'll see a lot of what people are calling a peacocking effect in fashion, which, as you can see, I'm already taking advantage of. And what that will mean is that once the pandemic is gone, people will really want to dress up and they'll really want to express themselves through clothes. I'm wondering how much of this now has to do with what we do with going back to work and and how relaxed the workplace is going to be in ways that it would never have been in the past? I think that, that that's definitely a part of it. I mean, I think, you know, workplaces have now become a lot more flexible than they have been before. And I think that one of the ways in which they'll be more flexible is by allowing people to wear sweatpants. But, you know, as I was saying with this comparison with jeans, people have been dressing up jeans in all these different ways for like decades at this point, you know. So people a lot of times will wear a blazer or what's called a going out top, you know, sort of a very fancy, almost like a cocktail dress in a, in a shirt. 
um, or, you know, a really nice button up shirt um, with a pair of jeans. And you can do the same thing with sweatpants. And that's something that we're already seeing you know, people do on the streets and on the runways. I don't know. Maybe it's for the rank and file and the executives are still going to be wearing uh, suits and, and dresses or, or, or what have you. I, I do read a story here that says one bespoke shop in Manhattan is still seeing a lot of strength in its suit orders. Uh, the owner of one shop, some clients have ordered as many as a dozen suits in one shop. So maybe it depends on who we're talking about here. Yeah, well, I think the thing that's interesting about the sweatpants and the suiting sort of things happening at the same time is that there really is this sense that fashion is a sense to express yourself, you know, and I think that there's a feeling that um, especially post-pandemic, we'll have this kind of individual imperative to really say something about ourselves with our clothes. And for some people, that is going to be wearing a suit, you know, because it's a way to express control. It's a way to express power. And for other people, you know, expressing power and control happens through wearing sweatpants. It's kind of a power move to wear sweatpants to work. You know? uh, I'll believe that when I see it. I literally will okay. believe that when I see it, when you got people wearing sweats to the office tower. Rachel, it's good to well, see who you. who knows what you guys are wearing under the those desks. You oh, know? if you only knew, if you only, <laughs> if you only knew. Rachel, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. Jason's back Thank with you. us along with Eliana. Oh, Eliana, what do you think? Is, is the formality of work over? I think it'll kick in when we're back in the office. However, I think it's changed because we now know you can be a productive professional without wearing a suit. And people are much more comfort conscious. You see it in furniture. People are buying much more comfortable furniture than the kind of those stiff furniture pieces no one even wanted to sit on. We're seeing a huge rise in people buying comfortable furniture, more blankets. And so I think the same applies for clothes and conscious shopping. People are trying to much be much more intentional with their shopping, eco-friendly and supporting diverse brands. Like many more um, fans of women-owned brands are showing their love and support for small businesses. Rec Room is one that I love. I have a family-owned small business in the conscious product space. And so we're getting a lot of interest too. And it's across industries. People are being much more conscious how they spend. And we're asking a guy here to opine, A, in an industry that never wears a suit, and B, from yeah. the guy who probably doesn't even own one. No, I mean, I literally have 20 suits. I got all these beautiful Xenia custom suits to wear on CNBC and to wear to meetings when I go to New York or with other venture capitalists. And I haven't touched them in a year. It's completely depressing to open up that closet and just look at them sometimes. And I, I can't wait to put a suit on and go to an event. I, sign me up. Let's go. I can't wait to be on the desk in New York. Can't wait to go to a wedding, a party. Let's do it. You um, and, but you, yeah, I mean, in yeah. all seriousness, the, my, you know, these if you get a $3,000 suit, you could literally buy out Zappos and Lululemon for that amount of money. So I do think this is going to become like super casual at work when we all get back. For yeah, sure. I know we're all ready to put on a suit End and do of an something era. fun. All right. End of Eliana, era. thank you again. Yeah, right. We, uh, we will see you soon, soon, I'm sure. Jason, you're back with us one more time. Up next, Elon Musk versus the world. The Tesla CEO facing a lawsuit over his Twitter game. More on the edges next. Welcome back to On the Edge Stocks today. The Dow, S&P, and the Russell all posting record closing highs. Coming up, a U.S. regulator now calling out Tesla's autopilot technology. Why the government is so concerned, we'll tell you next. Quite a day for Tesla. Shares falling on news and investor 
is suing Elon Musk and the company's board for violating an agreement with the Securities and Exchange Commission over tweeting. Mr. Musk had been fined by the SEC two years ago over his now infamous, quote, taking the company private at 420 funding secure tweet. And now CNBC tonight reporting the National Transportation Safety Board's chief has written a letter to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration over the company's autopilot. It says the company has been testing a beta version of autopilot on public roads with, quote, limited oversight or reporting requirements. Let's kick this around now with Jason Calacanis. First to the tweets. I'm wondering what you make of this shareholder lawsuit against Mr. Musk and the board. I mean, you really, it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Do you not realize that Tesla spends zero dollars on advertising? The CEO has 50 million Twitter followers. And whenever he goes on a podcast, it gets 30, 40, 50 million listens. They've spent zero dollars on advertising and the cars are promoted and everybody knows what Tesla is. If you cannot appreciate that or see that, you're a cynic and you should not buy the stock. You should go buy some NFTs or Bitcoin. Or if you'd like to throw all of your money into a giant fire pit, you could buy Fisker or Nikola. There are many options for you. That's my opinion. Yeah, but that, that's fine. But he did have an agreement with the SEC. And if he violated that, and if he's tweeting yeah. what this investor says are erratic tweets, despite the settlement that he have, it had, isn't that a problem? I don't think that he's violated. I think he's probably very creative with how he tweets. And if you feel they're erratic and he feels, you know, that's how he expresses himself creatively, then again, you don't need to buy the stock. You know, change the channel, go work on something else. And I think these are the same people who got, you know, burned by shorting the company. And so they're just anti-Musk, they're anti-Tesla, they're anti-innovation. They should just go buy you know, some legacy auto manufacturers. Um, they, they really shouldn't be in a technology company like this. And this is the new modern way that companies communicate with customers and shareholders. Well, you when they tell the truth, as long as they know. tell the yeah, truth, they have to tell the truth. And of course, it, listen, he, Elon said he's going to change the world with electric cars and he was going to deliver them for under $50,000 a car. Mission accomplished. He, he literally drove all the other car companies that were on CNBC making fun of him 10 years ago, saying range anxiety, electric cars will never work, Tesla's going to fail, and they were all wrong. And now they're all following Elon into a sustainable EV world. So let's be honest, the guy's a hero. He's made the greatest car ever made, according to every car magazine and accolade you could get. And anybody who has the car is passionate about it and will never buy anything but a Tesla, including myself. Okay, so it's let me let car. me ask you it's about the car. Company. Let me ask you about the car. This story that yes. CNBC.com broke. I urge everybody to check out this yes. article. Again, this letter that the NTSB chief has, has uh, sent to NHTSA. Tesla recently released a beta version of its level two autopilot system, they say, described as having full self-driving capability. By releasing the system, Tesla is testing on public roads a highly automated AV technology, but with limited oversight or reporting re requirements. So, you know, customers are the, the crash test dummy on, on this now. You know, I, I have the car. I've driven autopilot for the last decade almost. I mean, it's getting close to a decade now. Um, yeah, seven, eight years. And it is rock solid. And it is very clear. And if you speak to anybody who owns a Tesla, it makes it super clear. You need to drive the car as if you were driving it without autopilot. 
all it does is keep you in the lane, keep you perfectly distanced, and it lets you know if you've drifted out of the lane. It is lowering driver fatigue, and I think we're in a, a game of semantics here. He calls it autopilot. I think that's a pretty accurate name. Autopilot means it'll do some things automatically, but you need to take over. When you have autopilot on an airplane, that doesn't mean you don't have pilots. It means you have pilots who can multitask and who can still need to be able to take over the control of the plane. Yeah, so I, hear you. I do think that there's a little bit of cynicism here again. And I do think that if there's more reporting to be done, all of the data is in the computers. I got to go. hundred percent transparent. Jason, it's, it. been, it's been great having you. I know we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for Thanks, being with Scott. us this week on The Edge. Thanks to all of you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.